Well, good morning. My name is Tommy Clayton. I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Life Church, and I've already met uh, a few new names, new faces, and I want to welcome you to our church. Of all the places you could have chosen to worship this morning, we're thankful and grateful that the Lord brought you here, and I pray that you're going to be encouraged, you're going to be challenged, helped, and strengthened uh, in your faith before we leave this morning. We are currently back in the Gospel of Mark. If you want to make your way there, that is in the New Testament, the third book, Matthew, excuse me, second book, Matthew and then Mark, and you can make your way there. We celebrated Easter last week, and we were in the book of Revelation, and we're back in Mark's Gospel, chapter 3. And this is a very exciting account of the life and times of Jesus Christ. Mark was writing to a predominantly Roman Gentile audience. And you say, who cares who his audience is? Well, it's interesting to me because his audience was a culture very much like the one we live in today, in the West and especially in America. They were skeptical of all truth claims. They were religiously pluralistic. They had many gods, many goddesses, and they tolerated all those kinds of things. And they also had a very short attention span. (laughs) Anybody out there like that? I am. Did you know that Mark's gospel account is the shortest one? Very short and compact. It's only 16 chapters. And what's interesting is that Mark leaves out a a lot of the longer teaching dialogue that Luke and Matthew include. He's writing to a culture that has a short attention span. And listen, Mark is big on action and he's small on words. He's writing to a culture that would say this. So Jesus is the son of God, is he? Okay, well, don't tell me that he's the son of God. Show me that he's the son of God. Prove it. I want to see action. And so Mark's gospel account is kind of like a comic book, okay? It's got a lot of pictures, a lot of action, a lot of showdowns, a lot of pow, boom, piff. Um, it doesn't have a whole lot of teaching. He's writing to a culture that would be reluctant to read a blog, but they would spend a lot of time on YouTube. And we're, we're a lot like them in America, and that's why this is the best gospel. If you're interacting with somebody who wants to know who Jesus is, what's this Christianity thing all about, I would point them to this book and say, read the gospel of Mark. You'll find it very helpful. And I say all of that because we're back in chapter 3 now, and even though Mark's big on action... We're going to slow down a little bit, okay? The enemies have fled. The miracles are going to stop for a little bit. And Jesus is about to focus on his followers. He is about to invest in the men and women who have followed him around for the last half year or year. And we're going to learn some things about discipleship. So for the next three weeks, we're going to be in chapter 3. And this is a real short series, and we've titled it this. Three questions I want to ask Jesus. Three questions that I want to ask Jesus, and I'm really excited about it. Jeff and I both are. We've been praying about this, and I really do think you'll be helped and encouraged. It's going to be a powerful series. So today's question is this. It's this. Jesus, what do you want me to do? I think that's a good question to ask, because you know what? A lot of people are confused about that. Just go ask anybody that you meet, hey, you know about Jesus, right? Yeah, I've heard of him. What's he want us to do? What's he want from us? You may hear 50 different answers from 50 different people. And that answer to that particular question holds great significance. Wouldn't you agree? That's probably one of the most important questions you can, you can ask. What do you want from me, God? Because Jesus is God. He makes that claim. So what do you want me to do, Jesus? And this theme of following Jesus, here's a, a 25-cent word, discipleship. You hear that a lot. 
That just means following Jesus. What does that process of following Jesus look like? What does he expect or demand or ask of his followers? And listen, that's a big theme in this gospel, in Mark's gospel. It's all over the place. Mark is very concerned to answer that question. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, too often in our zeal and excitement to follow after God really hard, we have raised the bar, I think, on what it means to be a disciple. We've raised the bar on that. Some of our descriptions are so far out of reach for the common man, the common woman, and the common child. We've raised the bar too much about what Jesus wants from us. Larry Osborne wrote this. He said, if your definition of following Jesus is out of reach to the average guy and gal, then it's out of line with Jesus. Man, think about that for a minute. If your definition of what God expects of you as his follower, if it's out of reach, it's unattainable, unaccessible to the average Joe and Jane and their kid, then you're out of line, you're out of step with Jesus. And it's not only this, well, that may be unhelpful, it's that no, that's destructive, It's not only is that unproductive, that's counterproductive and harmful and misleading and dangerous. So Mark, early on, is going to set the record straight here. And listen, if you get this question wrong about what a follower of Jesus is supposed to be and what he's supposed to do or what she's supposed to do, you're going to produce either weak, floundering, paranoid followers who have a nervous twitch, or you're going to produce people who are proud and arrogant and intolerable. You ever been around a Christian like that? I meet them all the time, Jeff and I do. We're church planners, so we're out in the community a lot meeting people. And one of the things I always tell people when we meet them is we say, hey, we're Christians, but we're not angry about it, and we don't have halos over our head. And it's almost as if they breathe this little sigh of relief. I know that's a strange icebreaker, but try it sometime. It works, because that's what people think. They think Christians are holier-than-thou people who are angry about everything in the world. It's like Christians are against everything. What are we for? We don't really know that yet, but we know what we're against. we got a whole list. So we're confusing as to what it means to follow Jesus. Hopelessly confused people. I read a book called Gospel. It was written by a guy named J.D. Greer, and this was a life. I know you hear this all the time, but I promise you this was a game changer for me. It had, God introduced me to this book and this writer At a point in my Christianity where I was hitting the wall, my gears were stripped, I was almost done. I I didn't want to be in ministry any longer. It was too hard. And I read this book, and this is, I don't usually quote people that are lengthy, but please forgive me, this is just a page, and I think you can relate to this. Listen to what J.D. Greer, this is the introduction in his book, Gospel, and I think I've read this book like five times. It's a great book to get if you're looking for help in understanding what the gospel is, who Jesus is, or what he wants from you. This is what he said. I am a professional Christian. He means he's a pastor. But for many years, I found Christianity to be wearisome. He had me already when I read that. I'm like, me too. That's a confession you won't often hear from a pastor, but it was true of me. I first put faith in Christ when I was in high school. My conversion, as far as I could tell, was very sincere. I understood that Christ had paid the full penalty for my sin, and I surrendered to whatever God wanted me to do. I got a big list of stuff to start and stop doing for God. I went to a Christian school that emphasized conformity to a set of rules. We didn't dance because dancing would make you have impure thoughts. And we couldn't listen to music with a beat in it because that would make you want to dance. 
We weren't allowed to go see movies because movies would make you worldly. We couldn't even go see the Christian movies when they came to the theater because if people saw us at the movies, they might assume we were there to see worldly movies. And that might make them think it was okay to go see worldly movies. It was rules like these that real Christians lived by, I thought. I learned that real Christians tell other people about Jesus. So I set goals for how many people I would tell about Jesus in a given month. I even established a maximum time limit, 15 minutes, for how long I would sit with a stranger on an airplane before bringing up whether or not they knew Jesus. In college, I learned that real Christians love international missions, so I took lots of mission trips, 25 countries in 10 years. This guy's hardcore. I even packed up my entire life into an oversized duffel bag and went to live in a third world fundamentalist Muslim country for two years. I later learned that real Christians love the poor, so I sponsored a compassion child. But wasn't she just one in an endless sea of hurting people that desperately needed my help? Should I adopt five more? 25 more? Did I really need to drink that Coke with my dinner? Couldn't that money be used to feed another orphan? I constantly felt guilty about anything I owned. Whatever I gave, it wasn't enough because there was always more I could give. And then, of course, there was the unfortunate day that I read the biography of a missionary who talked about how much more you could do for God if you were single. And so I concluded that if I was really serious about being used maximally for God, I had to be single. That's what Paul said, right? To paraphrase 1 Corinthians 7, he said, I wish you were all like I am, i.e. single, so you could be unencumbered in ministry. Therefore, if I wanted my life to be leveraged for God's kingdom, how could I desire anything but celibacy? Wouldn't I be willing to be single for 70 years so souls could be saved for eternity? And then J.D. says this, By that time, I was living in a way that would have met just about anybody's standard as a real committed Christian. But this religion of so-called grace often felt more to me like drudgery than delight. No matter how many rules I kept and how disciplined my life was, I walked around with an ever-present sense of guilt. In the deepest part of my heart, I knew God was not really pleased with me because there was always something I could be doing better. It got really quiet in here. I'm sure none of you could identify with this. The really good Christians were always doing something that I wasn't. Seeing others more successful than me in ministry made me jealous to the point that I delighted in the thought of them falling into sin and being disqualified from ministry. Don't you appreciate his candidness here? I still felt enslaved to the lust of my flesh. My service for God was fervent, but my passions for him were cold. I certainly didn't desire to know him more. I was tired, and while I would never admit it, I was starting to hate God. He was the merciless taskmaster, always standing over me, yelling, Not enough. I want more. He was always there, waving damnation in my face, saying, If you want my approval, there's something else you must do. His constant demands were driving me insane. The more I strived to walk in his ways, the less love I felt for him. The more closely my feet followed him, the more my heart ran away. Recently, however, I discovered something that has changed everything. The gospel. That's a good book, guys. I'm telling you, you should get that book. Even if you don't listen to the rest of this sermon and you leave right now and go to Barnes & Noble and buy that book, you'd be better help probably. 
But listen, how many of you can identify with that? Do you hear all those things? Listen, those were things that he was around other people who were influencing him to think this is what Christianity is. And listen, there's nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves, but often those things are by themselves, right? Following Jesus is opening up a soup kitchen or adopting 10 orphans or moving your entire family to Bangladesh or translating the Bible into Swahili and taking vows of poverty and celibacy for the rest of your life. And listen, those things will not draw you any closer to God, not one inch. It's not Christianity, folks. It's every other religion in the world, but it's not Christianity. And I meet a lot of people like that. I was one of those people for a long time. So what does God want? Does he want all our money? Does he want us to give him all our time, all our family? Give him bloody sacrifices? Give him our property? You know, a lot of people on TV tell you that. God wants your money. (laughs) Does he want us to start a holy war in his name? Does he want us to oppose the whole world? Following Jesus has become pretty complicated these days. It has, guys. I'm serious. If you're a real Christian and you want to be a follower, you've got to boycott this company, this company, this business. Don't drink coffee here. They're liberal. You've got to adopt this cause. You've got to find some cause that resonates with you. Like homeschooling is the only option, or Christian schools is the only option, or anti-vaccination or pro-vaccination. Pick a cause, entirely sell your life out to it, and put a Jesus sticker on it. And that's discipleship. That's what a lot of people teach. That's what a lot of people believe. And that's a lie. That's not Christianity. You know, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and he said, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your thoughts will be led astray from the simplicity that is in Christ. It does not take the devil very long at all to go after brand new believers who are eager to please God and know exactly what it is Jesus wants from them. But I have good news for me. It's not that complicated. It's not. Did you hear what Paul said? The simplicity that is in Christ. So let's take a look at what Jesus says here, or or what Jesus does rather, that is very helpful and instructive for us in Mark chapter 3. We're going to read and we're going to, I'm going to back up. I'm sorry this verse is not included, but I want to mention it a little bit later. Verse 6 of Mark chapter 3, and we're going to read through verse 21. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus how to destroy him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Now look at verse 13 here. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. 
Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. So let's just take a step back and ask the question, what does Jesus want from me? And look, I'm making an assumption that's probably dangerous because I'm talking about discipleship. I'm talking about following Jesus. And kind of the assumption at this point in Mark's gospel is that these are people who have embraced Jesus' message. They've heard Jesus preach the good news and they've believed it. So assumptions are dangerous. So let me back up for a minute and say the first thing that Jesus wants you to do is to come to him for forgiveness of sins and for peace and for rest and to have your guilt removed and your shame removed and your fear removed. That's the first thing that Jesus said in the gospel of Mark. It says in verse 15 of chapter one, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Listen, Jesus didn't come introducing a new religion or introducing a new law. He came to offer himself up for us sinners to stand in our place as a substitute, to keep the law that we couldn't keep and to die the death that we deserved. And here's the really, really good part of the good news. Christianity is the only religion in the world that says it is finished. It's done. It's paid in full. Every other religion in the world, you're going to find some form of do, 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 work, try harder, do better, do more. Some of the things that J.D. Greer was talking about in his testimony. Christianity says done. It's finished. Christ has paid it all. It is finished. You don't even have to leave the tip. And now that you're a new creation in Christ, you can obey God and you have new passions and a new heart. So that's the first thing, is that Christ came and he, he asked us, what does he want from us? To embrace that message. It's good news. That's what the word gospel means in Greek. Good news. It's not good advice, something for you to do. It's good news, something that's been done for you on your behalf. And there's nothing else for you to do but believe it and rejoice. That's the first thing. Now, here's, here's the next thing, and this is the real number one point of this message, okay? What does God want you to do? He wants you to flee the drama. Flee the drama. You say, what in the world has that got to do with this passage? Man, have I been helped by studying this this week. And the reason I backed up one verse is because Jeff preached the last sermon when we were in Mark's gospel, and it tells the story of Jesus going into a synagogue, people that were worshiping together. Jesus was there. Some of the religious leaders were there, the legalists were there, the Pharisees were there, and there was also a man who was struggling. He needed help. He had a withered hand, and he needed healing. He needed um, his body to be transformed, and God was there in Jesus Christ. And when Jesus looked around, and he asked the question, is it, is it right to heal on the Sabbath? He knew everyone in that synagogue was angry, and he became angry, and, and the Bible says he healed a man and look what happens as a result of that. Look at verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So listen, this is just chapter 3, folks. This is really early in the ministry of Jesus, and already the plot thickens. We have the villains. We have the antagonist. We have a plot. We have a theme. The yarn is spinning here, right? The enemies of Jesus have already emerged, and they're plotting to destroy him. And here's what's really incredible about this, okay? The Pharisees, the word Pharisee, Jeff told you this, it meant separate ones, right? They thought they were pure and holy, separate from sinners, but they hated Jesus, the Messiah, their Savior. They hated him. And so when Jesus heals a man, he didn't do anything wrong. 
He helped a man who was suffering and struggling. The Pharisees went out and they plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. You know who the Herodians were? They were like a political group that were all about the Romans oppressing Israel. You couldn't get any more opposite than the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees were supposed to be the separate ones, but what did they do? They went out. They weren't content to dwell with the bottom dweller sinners like tax collectors and prostitutes and fishermen, but they were fine with the upper elite, the Herodian, the political race, right? Such, hip- such hypocrisy, it's staggering to even consider it. They went out, they conspired together how they might destroy Jesus, and here's what I want you to see. Look at verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed. What is Mark wanting to teach us here? What is one of the most important, I think, dynamics of discipleship? It's this. You can spend the rest of your life embroiled in drama and controversy and fruitless arguments and wranglings and gossip and slander and malice and never do a thing for the kingdom of God. You really can And a lot of people do, and a lot of people are, and I've been there myself. It's one drama after another, putting out fires, settling arguments. And when there's a whole world of lost, hopeless, dying people that need to hear about Christ, but we're over here trying to put out fires and having stupid arguments. And here's what's interesting about Jesus. Were there times when Jesus confronted the Pharisees? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there is. There's times he called them out. He exposed their hypocrisy. He exposed their dangerous Deadly false teaching. Chapter 23 of Matthew, he said, you are sons of hell. You are a brood of vipers. You're legalistic. You're whitewashed tombs. He called them out for who they were. But you know what? What's really interesting, you see a theme in Mark's gospel especially, is that a lot of the times when people were plotting and conspiring and they were after Jesus, you know what he did? He got away. You say, I don't like that. I I like the courageous Jesus, the soldier, the fighter. Well, listen, he's fighting. He's just not fighting on their terms. He's fighting for something else. Jesus had work to do. Jesus had men to invest in. Jesus had disciples to make. Jesus had men who were humble and who were eager to learn and who desperately needed him to walk alongside of them. They wanted to follow him, and Jesus took them away. And here's what's interesting. It not only says Jesus withdrew from there, and by the way, that word is a little unsettling to me. It means he fled. He got away. You think Jesus was a coward? No, Jesus wasn't a coward. Jesus knew that he could spend the rest of his... He didn't have very long, guys. Three and a half years of ministry, and Jesus knew he could spend the rest of his three and a half year ministry embroiled in fruitless arguments with the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers and the Herodians. Or he could withdraw, take this group of men who wanted to follow him and learn from him and invest in them. And that's exactly what he did. And in Mark's gospel, you see Jesus protecting his disciples from this kind of thing all the time. All the time. He's taking them away, trying to get them away so that he can spend time with them. That's what discipleship is. It's really interesting. There's a place in Matthew chapter 15. Jesus is teaching about what really corrupts people. He says, it's not what comes out of a person that corrupts them, but what's inside of them. Wicked thoughts, depravity, fallen sins that are in their mind. And he's teaching his disciples this. And his disciples came to him and they said this. They said, teacher, do you know that when the Pharisees and the scribes heard you teaching us this lesson, they were offended by it? Yeah, they were offended. The teaching on sin is offensive, isn't it? And Jesus said, that what, 
the disciples said, Jesus, you're offending them by what you're saying. And it's a very instructive moment for Jesus because here's what he says. He says, every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant will be uprooted. And he said this, leave them alone for their blind guides. And if the blind are leading the blind, both will fall into a ditch. Did you hear what he's saying there? They're saying, Jesus, you're offending people by what you're doing. Your ministry, your teaching, your method of discipleship, it's offending them. We got to go talk to them, Jesus said. Hang on a minute. He said, leave them alone, guys. Leave them alone. I've already talked to them. I've already exposed their folly. And if you keep following them and keep being embroiled in these arguments, they're the blind, and you're going to be following the blind, and you're both going to fall in a ditch. Jesus said, do you know how revolutionary that would have been to those men that all of their lives, the scribes and the Pharisees, were like the Pope to them? They were like untouchables, man. They were the holy of the holy, and Jesus says they're blind guides. Leave them alone. Get away from them. That's what he's doing here. He withdrew. He got away from the controversy. He didn't have time for it. And listen, I think there's something very instructive for us here. If you're spending all of your time just involved in drama, listen, don't don't leave here today saying that I told you to do something I didn't. I'm not saying if you're in a hard marriage, get out of it. I'm not saying that. And that's not what Jesus is saying. I'm saying if if you constantly find yourself in ministry circles and Christian circles where all you do is argue and wrangle and there's no fruit. That would be the the best test. If there's no fruit to these things you're involved in, there's just hate and argument and contention and drama and conflict and fires to put out, and you look up and it's been a year and you haven't done anything, I would say politely excuse yourself, okay? Probably not discipleship you're involved in there. And I have been really helped by a man named Tim Keller. I don't know if you guys have heard of that name. Jeff and I quote him. I read him a lot. He's one of my favorite pastors to listen to. He went to Manhattan, New York City, the heart of New York City in 1989. He, his three young sons, and his wife, Kathy, and they planted a church in the heart of New York City. Not an easy place to plant a church, especially if you're a seminary professor, which is what he was. He went there because nobody else will do it. Two other men said, no, thank you. He went and planted a church in the heart of the city, and he had 50 people that he started that church with in 1989. By the end of that year, there were 400 people there. By the end of 1992, there were 1,000 people there. And very soon, there were 5,000 people there. And you're like, yeah, it must have been one of those mega churches. They got a rocking band, a fog machine. He wears skinny jeans. He has a faux hawk. No, Tim Keller is a man who's bald. He wears glasses and turtlenecks, okay? They play jazz music there. There's no fog machine, is there, Jeff? There's, there's, there's nothing. <laughs> it's, it's nothing like some of the bigger mega churches. You know what he does? That man goes up there, and he engages the people where they're at, and he preaches the gospel to them. And countless people have found that church to be a compelling place where they can come, be transformed, hear the gospel, learn about Jesus, and be changed, And you say, oh, that's great. What's the problem? Well, here's the problem. A lot of people don't like Tim Keller. A lot of people are jealous of him. A lot of people are envious. In fact, I was on a website the other day. This is is just such a great illustration of what Jesus is showing us here. I was on a website. I just thought, I wonder if people are... This was 10, 15 years ago. I knew people were upset with Keller. And I found a website, and it was all the concerns this person had about Tim Keller. It was well-written. This is not some you know, homemade blog some guy did in his basement. This is a guy that knows what he's doing. He's writing. He's cataloging. There's footnotes. And I started reading this, and I had to stop because I don't have all day to read this stuff. There was like 50 pages 
of all these concerns, all these accusations, most of it groundless, flawless. And I think, here's a guy who's a Christian. How much time did he spend writing this blog, doing all this research? And here's Tim Keller. He's up in New York. He planted a church. He's making disciples. He's preaching the gospel. Listen, he started a church planting network called Redeemer City to City. They have helped plant to date in 58 cities around the world over 455 churches. That's pretty interesting to me. But here's the most interesting thing at all and how Tim Keller has helped instruct me. All along the way, people were throwing rocks at him, throwing accusations, trying to get him embroiled in these arguments. You know what Tim Keller did? Nothing. He didn't do anything. He kept preaching the gospel. He kept making disciples. He's written over 15 books, most of which were New York Times bestsellers because the gospel's in there. That's very instructive for me. It's very instructive for me and for Jeff because, listen, Keller could spend all his time trying to defend himself, trying to put out these fires, trying to silence these people, but he didn't. And I think, really, maybe he gets that from Jesus. Jesus withdrew. He got away from the drama. He got away from the conflict. He wanted to invest in these men. And that's exactly what I think Jesus calls us to do. Leave them alone. Get away from them. Here's the second point. Follow the master. Flee the drama and follow the master. Look at this. I'm going to skip over some of this because this is going to show up again and again. This is like a sweeping summary. Jesus is famous, okay? Jesus is popular. Jesus is the most compelling figure uh, who ever lived. Nobody taught like him, and so he attracted people. The, the geography here, there's hundreds of miles. It's not just that Jesus went out and people in the neighborhood came. People were coming from hundreds of miles away, from both Gentile regions, Jewish regions. They were hearing good news, and they were flocking to, to hear Jesus So look at 13, and he went up on the mountain, and he called to himself those whom he desired, and they came to him. Now look at this, verse 14, and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they, excuse me, so that they might be with him. You can underline those two words in your Bible, because that, my friend, is the mystery of discipleship. If you could ask me, what is the essence, what's the irreducible minimum as to what Jesus wants from me. That's the question we started out with, right? What does he want from me? He wants you to be with him. Does that sound too simple to be true? You know what's all Jesus wants? He wants to be with you. He wants you to have a relationship with him. That's what, listen, I know this is the special 12. These are apostles. They have special powers and gifts. But listen, on a wider scale, this is a perfect pattern and paradigm and model for what I think all discipleship is supposed to look like. Flee the drama, now follow the master. Jesus is calling men and women to be with him, to follow after him, to spend time with him. And listen, to be with Jesus is to be in the safest place in the world with the safest person in the world, isn't it? And you say, well, Jesus isn't here anymore. He's in heaven. So what do we do now? My son the other day said, Daddy, are you looking forward to dying so you can go and be with Jesus? And I said, Son, I am, but I don't have to wait till I die, buddy. I'm with Jesus right now. He said, How are you with Jesus right now? I said, He's everywhere. He says, He in that chair? I said, Stop, son, stop, okay? (laughs) Your children go there with you? Is he at the computer, Daddy, typing on the keyboard? Listen, Jesus went to heaven, but he said, I'm sending a helper. He sent us the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Do you know what the Holy Spirit's role is? I know this sounds all mystical to some people. Holy Spirit. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. And do you know what the Holy Spirit does? 
He shows us the beauty of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the holiness of Jesus. That's all the Holy Spirit does. That's his primary role in the Bible. He has what J.I. Packer called a floodlight ministry. You know what floodlights do? They're kind of hidden down in some shrubs, and they amplify something and, and shed light on it so you can see how gorgeous it is. If they shut down, you're in the dark. So Jesus isn't here now. He's in heaven, still alive, interceding on the right hand of the Father on our behalf. But listen, discipleship hasn't changed any. We are to be with Jesus, and we are to see him. We are to learn from him. We are to watch him. We are to behold him. And listen, as we spend time with Jesus, something really strange and mystical happens. You know what it is? We become like him. We become like him. That's the counseling ministry, B&B. That's our model verse. It's 2 Corinthians 3, 18. You know what it says? It says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. Being with Jesus is what the Apostle John wrote a lot about. And you know what he called it? He called it abiding. We don't hear that word much anymore. It's a Greek word, meno. It means to remain in something or someone. John is the apostle who wrote the conversation Jesus had with his disciples the night before he was crucified. Listen to what he said. This is what Jesus said. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, Jesus said. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Man, that needs to be stenciled on every... No, not every... I'm, I'm being legalistic here. It needs to be on every Christian home in the, on the wall. I can't think of a better verse to remind us of how much we need Jesus. He who abides in me will bear much fruit. When we're talking about discipleship, what does Jesus want from us? We want to bear fruit, don't we? We want to make an impact and help God build the kingdom, right? And make a dent in the darkness that's so covered and shrouded this world. Well, Jesus says, slow down. He says, if you don't abide in me, there's nothing you can do. You have no power. I think there's a really compelling reason why this is first in this passage. What did Jesus, He called these men to do what? To be with him. Why? Because that's where the power is, guys. There's no power apart from Christ, none. You can't do anything. You can, you can busy yourself, and you can make a lot of motion and a lot of racket and a lot of noise, but you're not going to be accomplishing anything for God's kingdom unless you abide with Jesus. And you say, why not? Because that's where the true power is. You will be transformed from one level of glory to the next as you behold Christ. You see his beauty, and that transforms you. You say, can you, can you help me understand what you mean by that? Yeah, I can. In the book of Acts, chapter 4, Jesus has already ascended to heaven, okay? And his followers, the disciples, they're, in, they're, they're getting a lot of heat from the religious leaders. In fact, Peter and John, the two main disciples, were arrested by the Sanhedrin and they were put on trial. You remember this? They were preaching that there's no other name through which you can be saved than the name of Jesus. Sanhedrin didn't like that. They put them on trial. They put them on the box, on the witness stand, and they made them answer. And it's really interesting, this phrase from Acts chapter 4, verse 13, because the Sanhedrin were blown away. Here's these two ignorant fishermen that were uneducated, untrained. They weren't part of the religious establishment. They weren't scribes. They weren't Pharisees. They weren't priests. They weren't rabbis. They were just two unlearned, ignorant fishermen that had spent time with Jesus. And listen to what they say. Now, when the Sanhedrin saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, 
they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with who? With Jesus. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. Listen, there's a power that is unleashed when you spend time at the feet of Christ. And I know there's so many things we can be doing as Christians, and we're all Marthas, remember? Martha was busy and distracted with much serving, but it was Mary who sat at the feet of Christ and listened to Him and learned from Him and watched Him and was transformed by it. And Jesus said, she has chosen the better thing, and it won't be taken away from her. That's Christianity. That's discipleship in a nutshell. You boil it down to the irreducible minimum, the, the real pure essence is Jesus wants you to spend time with him, and that's a good thing. It's not because he's selfish, it's because Jesus knows there's no other power apart from that, none. That's where the true power takes place, when you behold him and see his beauty. When you watch the way Jesus treats sinner, something strange begins to happen to you. You, be, you, you grow compassionate. When you see the way Jesus handled conflict and disagreement amongst his team, when you see the way Jesus suffered... That has a very powerful impact on us. So that's the first thing, is that follow the master. Here's the second thing. Find the mission field. Find the mission field. So the first one was flee the drama, follow the master, and three is find the mission field. Look at this, verse 14. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and so that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. I found this quote by a guy named James Edward yesterday. This is one of the greatest definitions on discipleship and following Jesus I've ever read. And it comes right out of this text. Listen to what he said. Discipleship is a matter of being with Jesus, speaking his message, and acting in his name. Let me say that again. Discipleship is a matter of being with Jesus, speaking his message, and acting in his name. And, and I love that because... To me, as I think about Grace Life and I think about what are we trying to do here, that's it. We, we call ourselves Grace Life Church where the insiders exist for the outsiders, right? And we're hoping to impact this city by doing acts of, of, of kindness, right? And by also speaking the truth. So we're a church that does both deeds and has creeds, right? We're sharing the message of Christ and we're practicing the life of Christ for our city to watch. Discipleship is a matter of being and going. So Jesus is calling these men to be with him, which is a pattern for all his followers. And then what's he doing? He's sending them out to speak truth in his name, to share the story of Jesus, to find people, to find people who are broken, who are weak, who are disenfranchised, who are sinful, who are struggling, and to retell their story by introducing the story of Christ. That's what he's calling us to do. To preach the message. Listen, we are all ambassadors for Christ. You know what that word means? It means that you represent King Jesus. Wherever you go, whatever relationship you're in, you represent the great king. So Jesus called these disciples to be with him, and only after that did he send them back out to represent him. That's discipleship. That's what Jesus wants from us. Make known the story of Jesus. This audience of Jesus' first group of disciples... They were so hopeless when Jesus found them. Their leaders had fleeced them and abused them. Their government had turned on them. Their religion had beat them down. They needed to know that Jesus was there and that he cared and that he had a purpose for them. And they knew that. They saw that because of what Jesus did. And you notice how it says he sent them out to cast out demons. And look, we're going to encounter a lot more truth about 
demonology in chapter 5 of Mark, so I'm going to save that for them. But I will say this. I think the point of this is, is, is very simple. Jesus is sending this men out to speak in his name, right, and to also act in his name. Say, what do you mean? Do you know that demons were terrorizing people? In the time of Jesus, demonic activity was at a fevered pitch, and people were bringing their children. It had been a, a, a scary thing to think about back then, is that demons really targeted young children to torment. And, and listen, they brought their children to Jesus, and he healed him. And now Jesus is sending this, these men out, and he's saying, look, go and cast out demons, relieve suffering, bring healing. Why? Because Jesus wants people to know that he's a God of compassion. He's a God of tenderness. He's a God of gentleness who knows people's needs and understands and is going to meet those needs. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Listen, we are acting in his name. How many broken, weak, beat-down people do you have in your circle of influence? You say, what does Jesus want from me? Listen, he wants you to go and speak truth in his name and do acts of kindness in his name. So what he wants you to do? To, to just break out from that center of safety that you have and become vulnerable for their sake and bring the transforming power of Jesus to them. That's what he wants. And it's really interesting. Jesus never would let these men find their identity in what they were able to do. How, how arrogant will you and I be if we could raise people from the dead, if we could cast out demons, if we could heal with a word? I mean, I'd be pretty unbearable. I can tell you that. But there's a story in another gospel where Jesus sent out 70 different apostles, and they came back. You remember this story? It says they came back, and they were rejoicing because the demons were subject to them. And you can see it. You can see the apostles coming back and high-fiving. It's like, man, did you see the way that demon just took off, man? When I said, hey, he ran off. He said, did you see that? He's like, yeah, I got the power. And Jesus says, oh, hang on a minute. He says, don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And he's teaching them a very important lesson, and he's teaching us an important lesson. Look, this church is, is in some ways like a Swiss army knife. There's so many spiritual gifts represented in this room. I know the temptation for any of us and all of us is to find our identity and what we can do for God instead of what God has done for us. Because listen, there's going to come a day where I can't preach anymore. Maybe I get tongue cancer. Maybe I get ill. Maybe I get paralysis on half a side of my fat. I don't know. There's going to come a time where I can't get up here and do this anymore. And if I've built my whole identity on my ability to preach, when that day comes, I'm done. I'm devastated. My life is wrecked. Now, it's not just ministry, though. Some people find their identity in their job, or maybe that they're pretty. I mean, the, the, the application is very wide here, but I think for the apostles, Jesus taught them from day one, don't find your identity and your strength and your power and what I'm giving you the ability to do. Find it in who you are. You're my children. You belong to me. I'm your God. And here's the last thing, and i got to close. I'm sorry. I'm running late here. Here's the last point. Foster the diversity. See, that's a crazy point. I know I was running out of F's and D's. I'm sorry. Flee the drama. Follow the master. Um, what was the last one there? Find the mission. Okay. Find the mission. And then the last one is this. The last one is foster the diversity. Look at these men that Jesus called. Have you ever thought about the, the first disciples he called? It's really amazing. The diversity there. First of all, the obscurity. He didn't call, like I said, any rabbis, any religious leaders, nobody that was trained. It's almost as if Jesus left the religious leaders, he withdrew to the sea, and he started his own, 
He started his own leadership team. It's almost like he backhanded a backhand slap to the religious establishment. And then Jesus appointed and empowered and entrusted his own followers. And you had fishermen. You had a tax collector. You had a guy by the name of Simon the Zealot. Did you know this? Simon the Zealot, that was a political position. And those men were actually called dagger men. Do you know why? Josephus the historian tells us that people like Simon the Zealot, they hated Rome, and they would walk around with these curved, razor-sharp daggers hidden under their cloak, and when they got close enough to somebody that represented their enemy, they would slice their throat and retreat. They were assassins. So, so check this out, okay? Matthew, the tax collector who stole money from Jews for Rome, and Simon the Zealot who sliced the throat of people like Max the tax collector. Matthew, the tax collector. Now, let me ask you a question. How in the world are you going to get a team of men together and those two not kill each other? What's the answer to that? The transforming power of the gospel. That's the answer. Why did Jesus call men with that diverse of a background, that diverse of a culture? I mean, socioeconomic differences. You've got a rich tax collector. You've got a poor fisherman. You've got a politician. And then you've got a traitor over here. How did they all get along? Only Jesus could accomplish that. And I think he did that to show us, to show this world. Look, look at this church. I love it. Sometimes it's like a bag of Skittles in here, and I love that. There's so much diversity represented. And look, um, I don't think Jesus wants a bunch of clones. I don't think Jesus wants every church to be middle-aged white men and white women um, who enjoy walks on the beach and eat sushi and watch Fox News and vote Republican. Okay? Jesus doesn't want that, and I don't want that. We don't need a bunch of clones in here. We need diversity, but with unity. And only the gospel can secure that. Only the gospel can produce this unity um, with diversity. And that's what we see here. So listen, that is what Jesus wants from us. He wants us to trust him, to believe him, to be with him, to flee the drama, to find our mission field, to speak truth in his name, do acts of deeds on his behalf, and to foster this diversity as we go. And I really think that that is what this passage is teaching us. And listen, Praise God that we can be with Jesus. He's holy, but we're sinful. How's that possible? How can a sinful person dwell together with a holy God? That's what God wants. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. How's that possible? For a sinner to be in God's presence because Jesus Christ hung on a cross and became a curse. He took the penalty. He took the punishment for us so that sinful people like us could be forgiven and could be pardoned. He became a curse so that we could become a blessing. Jesus became an outsider so that we could become an insider and be followers of Jesus. And he delights to be with us. Do you know him? Are you walking with Jesus? Are you one of his followers? Are you one of his disciples? Are you taking the next step in following Jesus? Next Sunday after the service, we're going to have a baptism service. Some people who have come to faith in Christ, they want to be his followers. They want to be disciples. And, and they've trusted the message, they've trusted Jesus, and they're going to take the next step, and that is to be baptized. I hope you're here to join in that celebration. We're going to have it right outside here in a big horse trough, like a country church, okay? I praise God for what he's doing in our church. He's saving souls and transforming sinners. Let's pray.